Welcome to all of you here in this space and those joining us through the broadcast in the Fellowship Hall this morning. It's good to be able to study the Word of God together. In a few moments, the ushers will be handing out Bibles. If you didn't bring your own and you'd like to use one, just raise your hand and they can get you one. We're going to be looking at Luke 24 today. And I'm really excited about this sermon series. It's all about the power of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for our lives. And I'm excited about that because I think if we actually remembered every day that Jesus defeated death and that because he's our Savior, death can't defeat us either, we'd live our whole lives with a lot more joy and hope. And that's our goal through this series, to remind you of the joy and the hope that Jesus' resurrection has won for you. And I want to talk a little bit about today about that moment that these two disciples on the Emmaus Road first felt that joy, their aha moment. But before we get there, I want to take you back to the mid-80s for a different kind of aha moment. Back in the 80s, when I was growing up in Bemidji, the MTV craze was just starting, and everybody at Bemidji Middle School were talking about the newest music videos. And unfortunately for me, living out in the country, we didn't have cable TV or even the possibility of having cable TV. And there was no way my parents were going to invest in one of those huge dishes for the backyard. Do you remember at that time they were about six feet across? So my only chance to see music videos was on a show called Friday Night Videos. It was on one of those UHF channels. You would turn the dial and tune your antenna into them. And it was on so late, it was really hard for me to stay awake that long. I was kind of wondering if it was maybe something like 9 o'clock, but someone at the early service told me that it came on at 11.45 where he lived, so it was, it was pretty late. And we didn't have a VCR at the time. It was still in that era where if you wanted to use one, you had to rent it from the video store. So, but my sister and I knew that these videos were going to be the topic of conversation, so we fought to stay awake. But there was one video that when I saw it, I didn't have to fight to stay awake at all because it grabbed my imagination. It was by a Norwegian pop group called Aha, and the song was called Take On Me, which I think shows that English was their second language. But it was a wonderful song, and especially the video grabbed me. And in this video, a young woman was reading a comic book in a diner when all of a sudden, out of the drawings, a hand reached up to invite her into the story. And she kind of hesitated for a moment, and then she took the hand, and she was drawn into the comic book. And the whole rest of the video was done in artist sketches of action. By the end of the video, she was back in the real world, and the man that she had read about had also broken free of the pages of the book and was now standing next to her. Now, I'm not sure if aha meant to deliver any kind of theological point. In fact, I'd be really surprised if they did. But something about that video really stuck with me. Because in a less literal but a more significant way, that had been my experience as a kid with Jesus. See, I was one of those kids who absolutely loved to be in worship. I loved to sing the liturgy, something about the poetry of the traditional liturgy taken from the book of Revelation. The lamb who was slain has begun his reign. It just grabbed my imagination. And I saw in worship a larger community of kids and adults who were all focused on someone bigger than all of us. And I wanted to know more of who that was. And from a very early age, I was ravenous 
for the Bible. I had the Good News Bible. It has those little sketches instead of detailed pictures, and that let you fill in with your imagination. And the more I read, the more I wanted to know about this Jesus, until gradually I began to realize that this Jesus that I was reading about was with me, and he had been with me the whole time. The real presence of the Lord that I loved was guiding me in relationship with him through worship and his word and speaking to me through my own prayers. The one that I'd been reading about was actually living in my real world, in my story. And I only knew it because he had first invited me through his word to know him and through the power of his spirit. The aha moment for me was a gradual one. I'd begun to see that he didn't just live in the book but in my life too, and in the lives of the people in my church who gathered to worship him each week, to remember that he's at the center of our present and he is our future. And the amazing thing is, this wasn't just my experience. That aha moment first happened some 2,000 years ago, three days after Jesus died on the cross. It was the experience of two disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. So now, if you have one, please open your Bibles to Luke 24. It's one of those resurrection accounts that we're going to be studying. It's on page 1550 in your Quest Bibles. And it says this. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. It says that same day, if you look back a little bit in the text, you can see that this is the same day that the women came and told the disciples that Jesus is alive. And these two are disciples of Jesus, they're student followers of Jesus, but they're not any of the original 12. We only know the name of one of them, Cleopas. So you might wonder, why are they on this seven-mile journey out of town? Why are they going to Emmaus? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us, but seeing all that they can talk about is Jesus, there might be a couple of reasons. First of all, maybe they're scared. Maybe they're running away because they had seen what had happened to Jesus and they didn't want to risk being noticed as his former disciples. Maybe it was out of fear that they were leaving town. Secondly, maybe they were discouraged. They had walked away from their life elsewhere, maybe in Emmaus, to come and follow after Jesus, but his story ended with death. And now maybe they were discouraged, disillusioned, confused. Maybe they were just going home embarrassed and defeated, wondering how they could have been so wrong about this Jesus. And third, maybe they were leaving town because they were angry. Maybe they were angry about this story the women told about Jesus being alive. They'd had enough of hoping. They had had their hopes dashed. Maybe they felt this new story was too much. They would not be duped into hoping again. Jesus is alive. They had seen him die. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're out of here. They thought they were going to be part of a new story, a new era. But now they were walking away from that hope. Their hearts are raw as they walk away from the city they thought would bring triumph for their people. They had hoped, they said, that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Take a look at that word, redeem. The word redeem means buy back. To buy them back from what? 
Were they hoping that they would be bought out of slavery to Rome back into freedom? On that day, they still felt in bondage to those earthly powers. And what should they make of these strange stories of Jesus not in the tomb, being seen alive? What would that mean? No conqueror lets himself get publicly killed by his enemy. But they had seen it happen. How could he be alive? And even if he was, why would he do this? The scripture says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible for what it says. The name Israel was given to Jacob in the Old Testament when he was wrestling with an angel. It means one who wrestles with God. And here in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus, beginning the new creation, Jesus still comes and meets his people, not just in their certainty of faith, but when they're wrestling, when they're talking and discussing what all this means, Jesus himself meets them in that conversation and walks with them. Now what does that tell you about your God? about who he has always been, about how he meets us. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, the psalmist wrote about God in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Do you see that same God here in Jesus? Even when his disciples don't recognize who he is, when they're blinded by their own fears and their questions and their anger and their disillusionment about what a Messiah is supposed to do, even then, as they're discussing these things, longing to understand Jesus himself is with them. You see, our God doesn't hold himself distant from us until we get things figured out. He knows our lives are too messy for that. In Jesus Christ, our God has entered into our story to walk it with us. And you can see that in how Jesus starts this conversation. He asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? That part of the text always makes me chuckle a little bit at a memory. In 1996 and 7, I I worked as a summer site director at a Bible camp in northern Minnesota, and the counselors there were to put on a Christ walk for the campers that included this story. And after their first attempt at this scene, I had to step in and curb some heretical ad-libbing that was happening. And this is how it went. Are you the only one who hasn't heard these things that have happened? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth? And then my Jesus actor replied, Jesus? Nope, never heard of him. What happened to that guy? (laughs) And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Jesus didn't say that. (laughs) He didn't lie to them. He just asked them what they were thinking about. This is not a deception moment. It's the beginning of an aha moment. It's the beginning of a conversation that will reveal the truth. So just stick to what things, okay? And my actor just shrugged and said, okay. (laughs) And I hope eventually he saw why. Jesus asks, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And why does he ask that when he knows what they're talking about? Well, why does God ask us to pray to him even when he already knows what's on our hearts? Because he wants to invite us into that discussion. He wants us to invite him to be part of it. 
so he can reframe what's bouncing around between our ears into something that's part of a larger story. He wants us to invite him into our burdens so that he can help us to carry them. What are you discussing together, Jesus asks. And they stop. They're silent, looking at their feet for a moment. They're probably not sure if he's safe to talk to. So they ask him, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus' responds, what things? It's an open-ended question. They could have told him about the high prices in the market if they wanted to. He left it up to them to share what they wanted to share. And he would enter in wherever they invited him to start. Because that's how God works with us. Jesus invited these two to talk about what was on their hearts, and they do. And you can see from what they say how confused they are. What happened in Jesus' story was nothing like what they expected. And they didn't see how crucifixion could possibly have been part of any plan, even if for some reason Jesus was still alive. They didn't see how that could have meant the redeeming, the buying back the Messiah was supposed to do. They'd heard the story, and now they were acting as critics of it. They were standing outside this strange narrative, trying to make sense of it, trying to see how it all held together. And then Jesus enters the discussion. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now that opening might seem a little harsh, but Jesus didn't come to help them process their emotions. He came to reveal the truth that would bring them joy and hope. And his words immediately reframe their thinking. Don't you see the bigger picture? You know the prophecies. Can't you see how they are part of a greater kind of redemption? And he showed them from the scriptures that all that had happened did fulfill the prophecies. Now, don't you wish you could hear that conversation? I just want to shake Cleopas and say, why didn't you write that down? But as much as I would love to see a transcript of what Jesus said there, I have to confess, once my eyes were opened to what God means by redemption, now when I read the scriptures, things about Jesus seem to pop out all over the place. God's true plan in redeeming us and buying us back was not about one generation with the Romans, but buying back all of humanity from the severing power of sin and death to restore us instead into eternal relationship with God through the blood of his Son. His death for our life. And in his resurrection, there is a new start, a new story begun for all creation. A story that will have no ending. And all through the Old Testament in my Bible, I've drawn these little crosses next to all the scriptures that, where I see a foreshadowing of what God would do in Jesus. And I'd encourage you to do that too when you're reading the Old Testament. It's really encouraging and amazing to see how many times you can see those prophecies, especially in the Psalms and the prophets. There are a couple of examples from Zechariah I'd like to share today. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We saw that prophecy fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. 
We see on Monday, Thursday, Jesus setting the meal of the Last Supper with his disciples and telling them that his blood would bring a new covenant to set us free from sin and death. And in Zechariah 12, I will pour it on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That Jesus from the house of David who was pierced by a Roman soldier on the cross would be the one who would bring grace and supplication for all the world. And in this scripture we see they will look on me, but they also see they will grieve for him. You see the Godhead, God the Father identifying with his son and specifying that he is the firstborn son. And in verse 13, 1, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That Jesus, who said the fountain of living water would open up through him to save us, to buy us back, not from the Romans, but from sin itself. You see, the prophets, they didn't know how God would accomplish these things. They just wrote down what God told them to write. Now we can see what God was up to, that he was up to something much bigger than they ever could have imagined. And for these two on the road with Jesus, as Jesus revealed the scriptures to them, they had just begin, begun to catch a glimpse of how big that this truly is. And this discussion changed something drastically for these disciples. The pieces were coming together, and what had just looked like defeat suddenly started to look like a greater victory, not just for the person of Jesus, but for the whole world. Jesus' resurrection suddenly changed their fear to unshakable peace, their disillusionment to a greater hope, their anger to an incredulous joy. And then they were home at Emmaus. But they couldn't bear to let the stranger just leave, not when a whole new world had been opened up to them. So they invited him to stay. But at their table, instead of being the guest, he acted as a host, breaking the bread and blessing it the way he had the night he was betrayed, the night he first proclaimed, this is my body, my blood, given for you for the forgiveness of sin. And that moment was their aha moment. Their eyes were open to see who the stranger really was, that Jesus himself had been with them the whole time. He'd stepped out of the story into their lives. And through their confusion and their disillusionment and their anger, he had been there, walking beside them, teaching them, bringing them hope. And then he disappeared from their sight. Why? Well, think if he hadn't. You know those two would not have gone anywhere. They would not have let him out of their sight again. But they'd been given a gift here, and now they needed to share it. They now see that they're part of a new story, and they run back to share that hope. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, all seven miles back, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Apparently now they're pretty sure that Simon Peter really did see Jesus since they did. The jury must still have been out on the women though. Some things die hard. 
But do you see what this story tells us? So many times we feel like those two on the Emmaus Road. We read the story of Jesus, of God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we see ourselves as outside commentators on this story, speculating, discussing, questioning what this story means and doesn't mean for us. And we wrestle with our own fear and discouragement, sometimes even anger of what we've expected, what Messiah means for us. But all the while we discuss these things, we too often miss that we're not just here talking about an old story about Jesus, that Jesus is here right now with us. We're not just remembering a story, we're in it. The two on the road to Emmaus saw very suddenly that the story wasn't over yet, that God wasn't done with what he was going to do in the world through Jesus. And here they thought they were discussing a story from the outside and they suddenly discovered they were in the middle of it. It was still going on right in front of them and in their own lives. And now their story is part of the narrative of what resurrection means for the world and what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, here and now, so is yours. God is still not done with what he's doing through Jesus' resurrection. And your life is also part of the unfolding reality of God's redeeming work in the world. And the chapters that will be written in your life will never disappear from what's written in the heart of God. You see, Jesus didn't come to stay in the book. He came to redeem you, to buy you back from the old story of sin and death and connect you instead into his story of life, to invite you to see that really you are living in his story. You're living in the new creation, the first chapter of a new kind of life right now, and there is so much yet to come. So today, invite him into your discussion and into your fear, into your discouragement, into your anger, and let him show you what resurrection means, the new story of what God is doing and what he will do in you. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your death and resurrection for us. Thank you for the hope that that brings into our lives to know, Lord, that you are not done writing the story of your redemption. Thank you, Lord, for buying us back from the old story of sin and death and where that would lead us. Thank you instead for being our salvation and the new chapter that you're writing in our lives. Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit you would continue to write your story on our heart and draw us to see where you are at work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, Lord. Help us to follow after you as your disciples and to know the good news that your story is not done, but that it continues in us. And in your love, this story will never end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.